22. Revelation chapter 22. As you're turning there, we'll pause and pray. Father, we turn to you at the end of a year and um, ask today that you would, you would renew our hope, our zeal and the blessed hope of your coming uh, for another year of service as we patiently endure, as we patiently wait. And we thank you for how you've confirmed your promises throughout the ages and uh, continue to bring us through each day in hope. So we ask for it today. In fact, you know that we need it. And I hope, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts that we would desire hope from you. And so grant us um, spiritual wisdom and understanding, knowledge of you that conforms us into the image of your son, not knowledge that puffs up. Please help us in this hour, we pray. Amen. I think we know by now that the, the greatness of Christmas is not simply wrapped up in a manger scene, but that the, the greatness of Christmas, the majesty is is alive and well still today because that baby grows and lives a sinless life and dies a sinner's death and is resurrected to glory as the firstborn in that way of his people and promises to come get his people and to bring them where he is, the place that he is preparing for them. And so Christmas simply signifies that he has come, and he's done these things, and so his promise to come again is sure. And so that's what we want to look at today. As we enter a new year, we want to look at that hope. We want to kind of sign off this year, or I, I'm attempting to today with you, to sign off this year by looking forward to his second coming. I don't know about you, and maybe you find yourself still in this situation, but I remember when I was a kid and up through being a teenager, the second coming of Christ terrified me. I mean, internally had a real fear of, of that, that if this is real and he's really coming again, then what I'm being presented through what I've heard and what I've read means a, a terrifying reality for me on that day. So for some, the second coming of Christ or the thought of it causes great anxiety, as it should. But for those who have been born again to a new and living hope, the coming of Christ the second time is our great hope and our great desire. That this perfect love that we've experienced through him now cast out the fear of judgment and alerts us to the fact that he is coming to rescue or coming to place us in his eternal presence of perfection and holiness for all time and we long for that and 
I hope that uh, you Christians would continue to grow in that hope and that desire. That that be the number one thing that is, that is uh, consuming um, your thoughts of the future would be his return. And that if it's not, maybe you might find that you are actually far from him. Because the more that you get to know him, the more you experience with him and through him, and the more you live to him, uh, the more you love him. It's inevitable uh, because of who he is. And so the longing for his return and the longing for his presence should continually grow throughout your life. And it wasn't, I didn't fully understand that until a few years into my journey with him that I heard people pray for that. And it kind of all just clicked as it should have even very early on. Like, well, yeah, why wouldn't I want that immediately as a Christian, right? And the more life you experience and the more you experience life in enemy territory here on this planet, you, it, it helps that. It helps that zeal for his return. It helps that zeal to be with him. And, and when you read Paul, that's Paul's great desire. Paul understands that, look, if I stay here, that means he has fruitful service for me here for you. But Paul's great desire is to depart and be with Christ or for Christ to come again. And I always like to, as way of reminder, um, help people remember that the fact that, that, that when, he's when he comes again, you're not going to have to look for him, right? It, it's going to be a worldwide event. It will be unmistakable. It will grab the attention of the entire planet, of the heavens and the earth. It, it won't be in secret. It won't be in a, a certain place that we're all going to have to hear about on the news. No, he'll split the sky, and with the sound of the trumpet and the voice of an archangel, he will come in victory here. And he will restore and renew what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And what we'll talk about today, he will bring us into a place where the tree of life is available for us to eat from. In fact, we're told it's the healing of the nations in Revelation 21, its leaves. Now, think back into the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, they are cast out because they are not to get to the tree of life and live forever. And what that's all about is God is, is making sure that they are separated from being able to be cemented in their current condition for all eternity. He's moving them out, right, of that situation, not allowing them to grasp eternal life until he fixes it or fixes them. And he does that through 
Jesus. And then we will be sustained by this tree of life. There's not really much known about this tree of life, which we'll talk about in a little bit, other than the fact that it is that healing, it is that sustaining, it is, it is uh, that representation of eternal life for God's people in God's presence. And that's where the tree of life is. It's with Him in the middle of His city. It's, it's on either side of this river that comes from His throne, the throne of God and the Lamb. And it means that God's people have come into this eternal life. But here at the end of Revelation, we are in chapter 22, and we're in the final passage, we're in the final verses. And we hear, uh, we, we, we see, have this scene where John is with this angel of the Lord who is communicating all these things that the Lord had given this angel to communicate. And John mistakenly is kind of overcome with emotion and, and glory and all the stuff he has seen and all the stuff he has heard to this point that he falls down before this angel to worship. Like that's the only natural response to all this that he's just experienced. And the angel's like, no, no, get up. I, I'm not God. You worship God, right? And, and that's one of the awesome things about what we see with Jesus in the Gospels is that when people fall at Jesus' feet in the Gospels, um, he doesn't stop them. Because he's God. Because worship is due him. That's right. So John is with this angel and this happens. And then this angel continues to speak these words of God and to communicate um, what's going to happen now until that time. And so you get to verse 11. And he says, Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy in other words the world will continue the way it is until this verse 12 behold i am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done now what is that he's bringing his reward or his payment with him to give to each one what he has done if you have sown unto eternal life then eternal life if you've sown into the flesh, then that means death, right? Or the second death, the lake of fire. But, but we need to remember that righteousness comes to us through faith in Him. And it's, and it's a foreign righteousness to us before that. It's not inherent to us. But through faith in Him, His righteousness then comes to us by His grace. So by His grace, by His unmerited favor, He allows or, or covers us with a foreign righteousness that is not inherent to mankind and never could be. Never could we be perfectly righteous. And so the, you're not saved because of works. You're saved by His grace through faith and what He's given you by grace. See how that works? And then we are 
moved into these good works that Ephesians 2 tells us he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And these good works are the, <clears throat> are the outworking of his conforming us to the image of his son, which is his goal here, his, his work of sanctification in our lives that we're told in Philippians he will complete at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, we will be holy and glorious with him at that day. But until then, we are being made holy, made into a holy people, a royal priesthood for his own possession. But there is, there is kind of degrees of reward for how you walk in the faith. Eternal life is coming to all his people, but there seems to be wages that comes according to each labor. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3, there's a little bit of a discussion here from Paul about what this might look like. And the discussion begins in chapter 3 with, uh, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, but these are merely men, right? Like, who are they? They do things, right? They plant, they water. But God is responsible for the growth. God is responsible for what uh, comes forth from our efforts. But the efforts, the faithful service is what he rewards. He's responsible for the fruit, right? And, and it's funny because this upsets people sometimes when I say this, but I'm not responsible for growing the church. God adds to our number. I am told that I am responsible to present you mature in Christ. That's, that's my mandate. God will add to our number as he sees fit. And may you pray that he does so, because what's that mean? That means he saved somebody. So we, we want that, but he does that. But anyways, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, disclose it. And that's what we're talking about in Revelation 22, that day. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So we see there that it's possible to do things that don't matter eternally. It's possible for Christians, verse 15, to do things that don't matter eternally. So, like William Carey once said, I, I, I'm terrified at succeeding at things that don't matter. So we want to do work that is uh, eternally vested. We want to 
make sure that the things we are doing are, are, are moving people into further relationship with Christ, further glorifying Him in their body and in their heart and in their mind. That's the kind of work we want to do. We want to stay away from silly things that won't last. We want to invest eternally in each other and in these efforts here on this earth. And the Lord will test each one of those works. Right? So we want to make sure that, again, Ephesians 2, we are walking in the works that He's prepared for us to do beforehand, which makes prayer a great matter of importance for us when we think about that. Because God gives us, through that communion and relationship with, us, with Him, a, 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 a leadership by His Spirit, like He led Paul throughout His missionary journeys to the things that He wants us to do. So not everything, not every detail, characteristics of who God is and what He does and what He has said do exist that lead us through the details of life. So we must be constantly um, asking of Him, where do you want me? What do you want me to do? And He makes known to us. He gives spiritual wisdom and understanding to those that seek it. So, He's coming soon. And we're, we're reading a letter or an account written probably in 90 A.D. And we're, and we're still talking soon. Okay? Because a thousand years is like a day to Him. And I, we don't know how He has decided to measure time to bring it to an end for His purposes. But we are in the last days. That's what the apostles said. And so we say the same thing because we are in that intermediate period where, God, where Christ has, has uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father with the promise there to return again, but has not returned again. So these are the last days. Because it's all leading up to when he does come again. Well, who is he? Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, in the Greek alphabet, that's the first letter and the last letter. Another way to, to simplify that, this verse is he is saying that he started this thing and he's going to end this thing. And sometimes I say that to the boys. I say, you might have started it, but I'll finish it, you know, as a way of uh, threat. But uh, that's what he's saying. And we, we see that, right? Anybody spend time reading their Bible from cover to cover, who started it? And who promises to end it? And everything he's done up until that point makes us sure that he will finish it. His promises to not only finish the work in our hearts, but his promise to finish his work in all of the world and the cosmos and to bring things to an end is sure. He, he has declared what the beginning was and he declares what the end is. 
He's God. It begins and ends with Him. And thankfully, continues with Him. Blessed are those, verse 14, who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is the final of seven beatitudes in Revelation where he pronounces uh, uh, or benedictions uh, 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 that the happy or the blessed are these people. And he moves throughout the, the letter here announcing those things. And this is the final one. There's the seventh one. And in Scripture, that's kind of a signal of perfection. So blessed are those or happy are those who wash their robes. Now, what are we talking about washing robes? There's a few places where this is discussed. But in Revelation 7, 14, they're looking at this great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they are before the throne of God, and they're praising Him day and night. And then verse 13 of Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. If anybody's ever gotten blood on anything, it doesn't seem to make it clean, does it? It seems to stain it. Well, here is the beauty of Christ's blood. Here is, here is the absolute perfection and holiness and purity of Christ's blood. You must be washed in it. You must be stained in it. It's the only thing that cleanses us from sin and the hold it has on us. And it, and it purifies in such a way that, it, that people who have been washed in it are described as wearing robes that are white. Like a brilliant, beautiful white, which is impossible to achieve, especially in the ancient world. But we're told that Christ's blood does it. That, in, that unless that has covered you, you cannot dwell in the presence of God who, who demands perfection and holiness to be in His presence. So, so we bring our filth to Jesus. We, we, we stand underneath that cross and we let His blood wash over us. And that's cleansing. It is not like our blood. It is not like the blood of animals. It is completely and utterly and transcendently different. It must wash over you. And then you have the right to the tree of life. You enter the city gates. You expectantly wait and hope on Jesus because of this know that i could go in he gave me a a robe to wear 
Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, Paul reminds the Galatians, uh, before he gives the fruit of the Spirit, he gives another list and he says, hey, as such were some of you, but you were washed. Right? So we understand that none of us is worthy to enter in, but he washes. Now, these people that are remaining outside if you look at the end of verse 15 notice something about them they love and practice falsehood this is a contrast with what i'm going to show you in verse 17 but they are existing in the state and the personhood that they love love and practice. It's not that you and I are going to die sinless. But it is that God's people have been given His Spirit and a new heart that while they may commit sin, they don't make a practice of it. Or they continue to grow in killing that sin and putting it away until one day it's not even a part of us. The, the pattern of life and growth that the world should see from God's people is not perfection, but that they should see this continual move towards holiness throughout their life. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David the bright and morning star. Anytime Jesus describes himself or gives himself a title, you should pay very close attention to it. And why here, towards the end of the scriptures, towards the end of this revelation, is he describing himself in this way? And I would tell you that it is a hopeful way to describe himself for his people. Because what that means, right? We know that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. And it's made very clear in his genealogies that he does come from the line of David. But what does God promise David? A king to reign over God's people on the throne of David forever. And you also have to pay attention to what kind of king David was. Perfect? No. We're not looking to David as the Messiah. But David was a priest king. Right? David interceded for the people. David uh, had a relationship with the Lord that was so different than everyone else, I would assume, from his writings. David loved the Lord. David uh, served as a king a lot of the time in light of that, sometimes not. But he was God's man on the throne to reign over his people on behalf of God. To bring them to holiness. And David fails. But the promise is not that David is going to reign forever, but that somebody is. And that that somebody is Jesus, who will reign perfectly, benevolently, 
graciously, uh, I mean, all the adjectives you want to put on it. He, he is going to sit on the throne over God's people forever. He is that anointed one that we were looking forward to throughout the Old Testament. He's the promised one. He's the Messiah. He is the light. If you back up to Revelation, or if you back up here in this chapter, in uh, verse 5, or go to verse 4, because this, this one phrase is always most incredible to me. Verse 4, Revelation 22, they will see his face. When we talk about eternity with God, we are talking about a physical dwelling with him. We're talking about an actual looking into his face. I can't describe that. Nobody living on earth can describe that to you. But like Peter says, it's the hope of that. It's the knowledge of him now that makes you love him. That when you do see all of this tangibly in your presence as in his presence, it'll blow you away. And I always tell people, how do you go from not being perfected here on earth to being immediately perfected when you get to heaven. It's His presence. It, it, is, the, it is the white hot glory of His holiness that melts all that away and finally gives sight to your faith which will transcend all throughout your, or, or transverse all throughout your body and and your veins, and, and that holiness will just wash over you until you are glorious. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I think that's quite literal. I, I, the, the sun and the moon were also told later, earlier on in Revelation, we don't need them anymore. They are created for our solar system and God's purposes and, and how all this works right now. And then in the presence of His perfect glory and holiness, He is the radiant light. Literally. The, the, Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So I told you, verse 17 is going to contrast verse 15. How so? The people who are invited into this scene, into this presence, are the ones who hear. Not just, like we're all hearing things right now. But, but when the Bible is talking, especially in this letter, talking about hearing, 
talking about, oh, thank you, Trip. It's talking about actually hearing to the point that it gets into your soul the words of life. That you're taking acknowledgement actually of what is being said. When we hear truly in a biblical sense, means we believe. And if we believe, then we're saying, come, Lord Jesus. But then it says this, the one who's thirsty. Thirsty for what? Thirsty for life. We're told in John 4, as Jesus encounters that Samaritan woman at the well, you know, she's thirsty, that's why she's there. But he says, hey, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking for me to give you a drink and you'd never be thirsty again. And she's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Then I wouldn't have to come to the well. He's like, no, not understanding. You're thirsty for life. Thirsty for relationship with God. What are we told in the Beatitudes? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. I don't have righteousness. I want it so bad because I, I live in filth. Well, that's hungering and thirsting for Jesus, who is our righteousness. And Jesus, and, and he says, you want me? You want that? Come on. He, he doesn't give any prerequisite there other than your desire here, we say, let the one who desires, other than that. Do you want Jesus? And guess what? If you do, you can take the water of life without price. I always like to tell people that the only prerequisite for being saved is being a sinner. You don't bring anything to the table. He brings everything to us. Didn't we just meditate that on, on that through Christmas? That He brought it all down here. He brought it all to you. And He's coming again with His glory and with His uh, judgment, His winnowing fork. So basically, it, it comes down to what do you want? And we say that a lot here, but what do you want? You know? If you want the things of God, like Abraham, if you want to dwell in a city whose founder and builder is God, you will. If, if you want to be free from sin and the bonds that put you in in the flesh, you will. If you want, here's the, here's the great thing. If you want to know God, you will. Like you can think of people throughout history and throughout the world that maybe you want to know, you know? And those desires are never, ever guaranteed to you and most likely not fulfilled. But if you want to know the sovereign creator of the universe and also the sovereign consummator of the universe, you will. And so my prayer, and I hope you'll join me for the new year, is that God would, by grace, 
make people hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that maybe you and I can be those like Paul and Apollos that tell them where to find it. So respond to the Lord now and then we'll stand and sing.